2 Corinthians 12. We'll be looking at the second half of the chapter tonight, but let's read the entire chapter together. So beginning in verse 1, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weakness, weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, 
arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Father, we thank you for our day. We thank you, Father, that each morning there are new mercies that find us. God, we thank you that there is a throne of grace and a fountain that never runs dry. Your cupboards are never barren and you are never miserly. We're grateful, Father, to be able to come again and again and not fear that we come one time too often or that um, you're busy and cannot hear us now. God, we praise you for the, uh, the grace that you constantly pour out on us and the tender way with which you deal with us, even in our um, slowness to change and slowness to believe. God, in our failures and our often repeated failures, Lord, you are so kind, and we're grateful that we find that kind of heart in you. We're grateful for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Father, we praise you that because of him, our sins have been put away into the sea of your forgetfulness. And God, we are grateful that you don't leave us as we are, but that you are at work to transform us into the likeness of Christ. God, we pray that we would find that to be an ever-growing reality in our lives day by day. That um, we would long for that and work toward that end even as we trust that you will accomplish your good purposes. We ask God that you help us tonight as we look again at this passage, at this little letter. May our hearts be challenged and encouraged. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 7 says there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. Paul for a while was silent with the Corinthians. After his tearful visit, he withdrew. He writes a letter in which he begins to address the issues that he saw there. And as he addresses those issues, he begins by addressing them in kind of a general way. And as he moves through the letter, he seems to come back to some of the same themes again, but he addresses them in a more pointed way. And as we get into these last chapters, these last sections of 2 Corinthians, he's, he's getting very pointed He's coming to the end of the letter and what's next is his visit. And he has already expressed that when he comes, he hopes it won't be another tearful visit. That he won't find them to be what they were when he came last time. He doesn't want to come and have to wield a rod, as he says in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't want to come and have to be bold, which they've said he can't be. And so he hopes that they all will have repented and that he will be able to come and 
rejoice in them and they rejoice in him and all of them together rejoice in the Lord. Knowing, though, that his visit is what's next and that the letter's coming to an end, his, his language does become more pointed. And so, as you look at verses 11 through 21 and, and you see the things he addresses here, um, he's addressing some of the same things again. There are a few newer things, but a lot of the stuff he's already said, he's saying again. And so he's answering their suspicions again. There are several that are mentioned here, and I'm going to mention them, mention them just briefly, and then we'll look at the passage and, and try to draw some applications from it. But the Corinthians are still offended. He's still addressing them for being offended that he would not receive payment from them. He refuses to be supported by them because of their immaturity in Christ, because of uh, the views that they have of um, kind of, where he, he might be beholden to them if they pay him, kind of a cultural view. Um, and so because of those kinds of things that he sees in them, he refuses to receive money from them, even though he receives it from other churches. whom He's not presently um, serving or, or, or you know, he's not there. He says this in verses 13 and 14. In what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? And how did he not become a burden to them? By receiving money from them. Forgive me this wrong. And then he says here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And in verse 16, he says, but be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. That's not what I've come to do. And so he's not seeking them. Pardon me, he is seeking them, not what's theirs. He's not trying to, uh, to take from them. He views them as his children and the Lord. And he's a parent. And he says, parents don't you know, take from their kids. They, they save up for their kids. Now, I want to mention that in 2 Timothy... I believe it's 2 Timothy, maybe 1 Timothy. Um, he does address widows. And he mentions there the church supporting widows. And there are several different stipulations that he gives. And one of them is that they not have believing children who can take care of them. And he says that they should. If, he, if you have believing children, they should take care of you. And so the fact that he says in this passage, children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for the children... And then in Timothy, he says what he says there. I believe what he's saying here is, in essence, that the Corinthians are immature. They're still, it's like they're young children. Parents don't expect their young children to save up for them and take care of them. In your old age, a widow, sure. But here, no. And so he's viewing them as his little children. And as a parent, he takes care of them. It's not their responsibility for the children to take care of him. A second suspicion that they seem to have is that he is an inferior apostle if he's an apostle at all. Because of things that others have said about him, because of, of uh, his, his ongoing uh, weaknesses and persecution that he endures. He doesn't, as we've said before, he doesn't appear to be living a very victorious life. And so they view him suspiciously because of what the false teachers have said to them. In verses 11 and following, he says, 
I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. When he says in verse 13, in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? It seems that what he's saying is, they are saying we, we've been treated wrongly because we didn't get a real apostle. We got an inferior apostle. And so the other churches you know, maybe got a better apostle than we did, and so we've been treated in an inferior way in that way. And he says, no, the only way that you have been treated inferior to the rest is I wouldn't become a burden to you. And the burden is, is kind of code language in this letter for I wouldn't receive payment for you. I wouldn't be a burden to you in that way by taking your money. That's the only way you've been inferior. Forgive me for, for making you feel inferior in that way. <laughs> but he insists that they have not been treated that way. In fact, the apostle who came to them, Paul, is no inferior apostle. He says, I am in no respect inferior to the most eminent apostle. Now, as I mentioned last week or the week before, where he talks about eminent apostles or super apostles, there's a question about exactly who he means here. Is he talking about the false apostles who have certainly built themselves up in the eyes of the Corinthians? And so they appear to be very eminent, super apostles, you know, even taking from you, but I'm not inferior to them. Or does he mean the 12 apostles, the, the, the other 11 who are in Jerusalem? I'm not inferior to them, these eminent apostles, these pillars of the church that, that everyone recognizes as apostles. Even though I was not one of the 11 or one of the original 12, I'm in no way inferior to them. Personally, I'm leaning toward the second, but either way, he's insisting you've not been mistreated by my coming to you. You didn't receive an inferior apostle. And to prove that, he points to the fact that the signs of an apostle were all performed among them. Verse 12. He mentioned signs and wonders and miracles. These are three words for the same thing, but they, they demonstrate different aspects of the same thing. A sign is a miracle that points to something. It's a sign pointing to something. A wonder is the effect that a miracle often has. You see a miracle occur and you, you're like, wow, you know? And the miracle itself speaks to the divine power that's exercised. So three words that point to different aspects of a miracle. But these all attended Paul's preaching in some way, some surely visible ways. We see in the book of Acts a number of miracles occurring. And some perhaps that were more inner that had to do with uh, him being able to, to, to write a letter of the New Testament that is infallible because it's the word of God. And I would assume preach in that way. I, there are times when I speak and I have to back up because what comes out of my mouth isn't exactly what I mean for it to come out. you know. Or sometimes after the fact, I realize, I think I said this. And I'm not sure, that wasn't right. Paul, I don't think, was burdened with that. Because he is 
He's an apostle. He is gifted by God. And so there were signs and wonders and miracles that attended his preaching. Now, in the book of Acts, when he is at Corinth, the book of Acts does not list any of those. But that doesn't mean they didn't occur. In the book of Romans, I think it's chapter 14, but I didn't write it down, so I'm not positive. Which is written after 1 and 2 Corinthians. He speaks about his preaching being attended by these, these miracles, these wonders, these signs. And apparently that was a regular thing that attended his preaching. And so to... Um, um, authenticate his message as an apostle to these frontier places that he's going. God blesses him in this way and these things are performed. The Corinthians saw these things. They understand this is an apostle. He does say, in verse 12, that these were performed among you in a a passive tense. He doesn't say, I performed them, but I do believe the idea is God performed them through me, but God performed them. They're things that God did. So he answers them about the inferiority that they have attributed to him. I, I was in no way inferior. I The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. Another suspicion they have. They suspect he's trying to take advantage of them. In verse 16, he says, But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. And as you read verses 17 and 18, evidently the idea was that, so you you didn't, Come and take advantage of this yourself, but you sent other people to take advantage of it. So you were kind of an upstanding fellow to get in the door, you know, to open the door so other people could come in. But he answers by saying, Look, I sent Titus and this other brother. Did they take advantage of you? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is an obvious well, no. And they didn't take advantage of you because we conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps. I'm not living one way and sending to you people who are out to to fleece you. But we're not seeking to take advantage of you at all. In fact, he insists that he doesn't want what's theirs. He wants them. One other suspicion. And that is, they suspect he's trying to defend himself to get back in their good graces. Verse 19 All this time, you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Stop right there for just a moment. Because if you think about this letter, he has been doing that. I mean, the letter is largely a defense of his apostleship, a defense of the new covenant ministry. But he insists now that as he's defending himself, it's with a purpose that they haven't suspected So all this time you've been thinking that we're defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Our defending ourselves has been for the purpose of upbuilding you. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes. And so I'm not going to spend any more time right there. We'll come back to that one. So there's some new suspicions here. There's some old ones. 
But again, as he answers, his answers become more pointed. And we do understand this kind of talk, I think. Um, You may not do this, but I find myself doing this sometimes. I go up to my boy's room and I see it. And I'll say something like, this room's a mess. And maybe I see it again and I say, this room needs a good cleaning. And, you know, finally you say, clean this room. When really what you meant when you said, wow, this room's a mess was you should clean this room. (laughs) But, you know, you kind of start vague and not so heavy and you get more heavy. (laughs) Well, That's kind of what he's doing. He he started by addressing uh, some of these issues and supporting them by pointing out the uh, the superiority of the new covenant. He's not addressed a number of things. Now he's getting, again, much more pointed. He's coming to the end of the letter. And so he's speaking much more plainly. Well, let's move along. Paul treats them throughout this letter, and we see it especially here, he treats them as what they profess to be. Beloved. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And he does this until he cannot. Now, this isn't the first time he's used the term beloved. And he calls them that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14, where he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of of God. In this chapter, without using the term beloved, he's expressed his love for them in verse 15. And now again in verse 19, he calls them beloved. But consider a couple of things when you think about him using the word beloved in verse 19. First, I want you to remember how his audience has shifted. We've talked about this, but you may have forgotten. In the first part of the book of 2 Corinthians, he's writing to the entire church, but he's really addressing more specifically the majority that have already repented. Then, beginning in chapter 10, his language changes. So so drastically that some people think it, it was added later or it doesn't really belong to this letter. I believe that the explanation is his audience has shifted just a little bit. He's still addressing the entire church, but specifically the minority that has not yet repented. That kind of shift in audience explains how he can speak in chapter 7 of them as already being repentant and praising God for the work of repentance in them and how thorough that work was. And then write things like he does in chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. Look again at verse 20. I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality and sensuality which they practiced. How can he say that and in chapter 7 talk about how thoroughly they've repented? Well, again, I believe there's a slight shift in audience. But it's to this part of the audience that has not yet repented, or these he fears has not yet repented, that in verse 19 he calls beloved. 
Second, their sins, if they are still clinging to them, they are sins which they have held for a long time. I don't know exactly how long, but looking at a few scholars this afternoon between the, the you know, dates of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and they're, they're guesses, but most of them guess there's about a year that passes between 1 and 2 Corinthians. I don't know how long these things were going on before 1 Corinthians is written. It could be a little bit more, a little bit less between 1 and 2 Corinthians, but a year. These sins have been held and he fears they're still being held. Beloved. These sins are public sins. He's not writing to them about private sins that no one knows about. He's naming sins. And these sins are not what we would call respectable sins. And yet, it is to them that he addresses his beloved and says, I'm willing to spend and be spent for you. I've done all this not to defend myself, really, but really to upbuild you. I don't want what was yours, I want you. It seems that this is a rebuke against how quickly we might be tempted to write some people off. Do you ever do it? We see someone and their sin and we think they can't be a Christian. I sometimes think if someone could see my heart, they would say the same thing. Paul looks at these and he still hopes that they are. I'm often amazed at Lot. He's one of those I look at and I think, how can he be? Yeah. He chooses the well-watered plains. He, he pitches his tents toward Sodom and Gomorrah. He ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah. But you look in 2 Peter chapter 2, and Peter writes, if he, if, if God rescued right, righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul Tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. If Peter didn't write that, I would never think that of Lot, would you? This isn't only a rebuke, but I hope it's also encouraging. If you have been fighting against a long entrenched sin, then this should be encouraging. Not to remain in your sin, but to be encouraged that all is not hopeless. You don't have to you know, decide there's no way you can be a Christian because of this. Or that Christ cannot possibly love you. 
really is encouraging encouragement to, to run back to him, to return, to repent. Paul treats them as what they profess to be. Beloved. Brothers and sisters. He does this, I believe, because third, he understands, and we must understand, that sanctification requires patience. Certainly, your sanctification, my sanctification, requires patience. I think one of the uh, kind of alarming things sometimes for the new believer is to realize that you know you're not. I think John mentioned it Sunday. You're not immediately fixed, or you know, within a year or two, fixed, and every all your problems solved and all sins dealt with forever. But for your lifetime, you are being sanctified, and throughout your life, you are dealing with sin and things that you thought you put away and have been gone for a long time. Sometimes. They spring back up and there they are again. And then sometimes there are new things that seem to pop up and become temptations that really were not a factor before. Sanctification requires patience. And maybe the fact that it requires patience is part of the sanctification. It takes a while. It takes a long time. And the waiting and the the fighting is part of the sanctification. It's, It's not immediate, is it? Bearing with others as they are being sanctified requires patience. And Paul is very patient with them. We, I think everyone here probably is aware that when you think about New Testament church that's this problematic, that's plagued with problems, you know, your mind probably goes to the church of Corinth. Not that the other churches don't have any kind of problems, but Corinth just seems to have their, their fair share and then some, you know. And then you think, well, Paul writes 1 Corinthians to deal with, with problems. And evidently there's a, at least one letter that falls in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians and there's a visit that comes in between and then 2nd Corinthians is written and you get to the end of it and here are sins mentioned that he was addressing in 1st Corinthians and they're still there. How patient has he been? He is so patient with them, so gentle with them, that they have accused him of timidity. He writes big talk, but when he's with us, he doesn't talk so big. I mean, they're basically calling him a coward. He's been very patient. And in that patience, he is following the example of Christ, is he not? Christ is patient. You see so many examples of it in the Gospels. And surely you can pull plenty of them from your own life. But think about just two examples in the Gospels. One is in Luke chapter 9 that I want to mention. Verses 52 through 56. He's traveling through Samaria. 
And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Not welcome here. <laughs> when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We'll fix them. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So he rebukes them, but he doesn't disown them. He doesn't leave them behind and tell them, get away from me. I don't know you. He's patient with them. Or you can think about in, in Matthew 26 at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray and you know he's about to be arrested. He leaves his disciples behind. He leaves the three behind and tells them to watch and pray. He goes on a distance and he prays and he comes back and he finds them asleep. He wakes them up and tells them. Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, watch and pray. He goes off a distance, prays, comes back, they're asleep. Does it a third time, they're asleep. But again, he doesn't disown them. He's patient with them. Shockingly patient. This sanctification of others requires patience. And it especially requires patience when you are the one who is bearing the brunt of their sin. That's really what makes their patience so surprising. It's not just that they're patient with people who are struggling you know, over there that we read about somewhere. But Jesus is patient with the disciples who he walks with and talks with and rubs elbows with and knows them in a way that you know, we can't fully comprehend. Paul, who has lived with these Corinthians and dealt with these Corinthians and, and prayed and agonized over these Corinthians, remains patient with them, even though they kind of turned against him and, and make these specious accusations against him. Think he's trying to take advantage of them. It's kind of twisted thinking. And still he remains patient toward them. It's, it's amazing. It's, I think, probably part of what he speaks of in chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, when after listing all those different kinds of, of weaknesses or, or, or uh, distressing troubles that he's dealt with, he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I mean, part of that concern surely is, you know, there's trouble over here in this church and there's false teachers threatening over here and there's this doctrinal issue over here and this problem in Corinth is this. There's all of these pressures of concern for these churches. And then he says in verse 29, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? The Corinthians have been led into sin. And he's demonstrating his intense concern as he prays over them and, and visits them and writes letters to them and remains hopeful for them. Well, you don't have to be a, an apostle or, or a pastor to 
understand something about that. I mean, have you never watched a friend struggling with something and, and you, you hurt for them and you grieve for them and maybe you are even impacted by it and you, you can be patient and point them to the Lord or you can throw up your hands and say, I quit. Or what you know, parent with a child or sometimes a child to a parent or a spouse, you, you watch them struggle and you feel the effects and you long for them with intense concern. He's patient. Patience isn't enough. Your, your desire or your goal for others must be a biblical goal. You can desire wrong things for others. You can have the wrong end in mind. You can uh, want the wrong thing even with, um, in, in the sense of, of good things that aren't the best things. But Paul's goal has been pretty fixed. He says in verse 19 that while they think he's been trying to defend himself, actually, all along, I've been working for your upbuilding. I'm trying to build you up, edify you, strengthen you. Establish you. In Ephesians 4, he writes how God has has gifted the church with that end in mind. Verses 11 and following in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And having stated that that's what God has done and that's how God has gifted the church, And Paul being one of those gifts to the church, he's laboring toward that very end. He wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 10 and verse 8, Even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. To the Romans, chapter 14, 19, he said, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. To the Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 11, and 1 Thessalonians, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Again, he's been pretty consistent, not only in saying this is what the Lord has done, but in his teaching of that and in his application of that as he himself has labored toward that end.
I remember some years ago now being given a copy of Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, which was kind of eye-opening. I'd never thought about it, how you could you know, labor to teach a child good manners and good morals in such a way that they do those things but don't really love Christ. I knew that, you know, I understood that they didn't guarantee them being a Christian, but the idea of just making them love morality, it's not something I'd put together. And so you could have kind of a good goal, and it's not a bad thing, that they be moral, that they obey, but it's not the best thing. It's not the goal. It falls so far short of what you actually desire. We need to understand what the goal is. Paul was very clear. He's not trying to get something from the Corinthians. He's not trying to fleece them, certainly. He's not even trying to win their affection to him so that he feels better about himself. His goal is not that they obey him just because he's the boss and everybody better obey me because you know I'm the boss. It's not that kind of arrogance or, or selfishness. It's because of the gospel. Here's, here's the truth. Here's Christ. Here's the new covenant. And you claim to be a part of that. And if you are that, if you belong to him, he longs for them to know and love Christ and to obey and enjoy Christ. And so he pursues them and it's all for their upbuilding, their edification. If he would be patient, if we would be patient, then you must find your significance in Christ and not in others. If you find your significance from relationships with others, then what do you do when the relationship goes wrong? When they turn against you, as the Corinthians do to Paul. If all your hope is tied up in the relationship, then how will you remain patient? How will you stay the course? It's only if you have your, you know, your, your significance, your identity found in Christ that you can stay the course. You'll be tempted to make adjustments. To accommodate them. To, to keep their affection. We see Paul doesn't do that. Even as he pursues them. He tells them in, in verse 13. I myself did not become a burden to you. I refused to take your support. Verse 14 he tells them here for this third time. I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden to you. I'm still not going to take your money. It's offended you. Forgive me. I'm still not going to do it. There was a principle attached to it. And it was for their good that he refused to do it. And so he does not accommodate them. Again in verse 19. He says, all this time you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. I mentioned earlier that the Corinthians seem to, to think that Paul's defending himself, himself to get back in their good graces. Or to, to keep them from thinking that, he gives a preemptory statement. That's not what I'm doing. He nips that idea in the bud by expressing two ideas. First, while they may think that he's been defending himself, again, he's actually seeking to build them up. We've talked about that. The second one, though, 
while they may think that he's speaking in their sight, and that's kind of implied in verse 19, the second half is not implied, it is actually in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. In the sight of God is kind of the idea of before the bar of God. So in whose judgment are we speaking? Who are we putting ourselves before to be judged? You may think that I've been speaking to you to be judged by you and accounted by you in a way that we are seeking to get back in your good graces. But you need to understand that's not what we're doing. This whole time, we've been speaking in the sight of God in Christ. He's the one who's judging our words. He's the one to whom we'll give an account for what we've said and how we've said it. And so we've been speaking in His sight. Seeking His approval, not yours. We're seeking to win you, but we're doing it for His approval. It kind of goes back to what He has said before about being their slaves for Christ's sake. Yes, I'm serving you. I want to build you up. I love you. But I do it for His sake. It's a similar idea that He expresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17 where He said that we are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, we speak from God. But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Same kind of phrase there. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. He's the one who's judging us. He's the one whose approval we're seeking. We're, if we're seeking His approval, then we can't peddle or adjust the message to accommodate anyone. When Paul says that in verse 19, I believe he's not only speaking of adjusting the message, but he also speaks of himself as speaking from a position of authority. And he can say that in a way that you and I cannot. So I just want to mention this. He does speak as an apostle. And his words as an apostle are not to be judged by them. Are they true or not? And he can say that in a way that you and I cannot. We do have an accountability to each other in a way that Paul was not accountable to the Corinthians. He was accountable to them in a sense as, as a brother, but not as an apostle, if that makes sense. Pastors are not apostles. There's no, I don't believe there are any apostles today, but Paul, as one who is writing you know, something that's going to be canonized, he's, he can speak in a way that we can't. So I did want to mention that, but there's still the application, I believe, of trying to accommodate or speaking to appease people or to gain their acceptance or approval. And we can't afford to do that. Not and love them and not obey, do that and obey God. One more. The gospel demands that you spend yourself for the glory of God and the good of others. In verse 15, Paul said, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And that idea of spending himself, spending what he has, his resources, and spending himself 
is really seen throughout this passage and throughout this letter. Again and again, he writes of himself, in a sense, dying so that they may live. He becomes weak so that they may be built up. He's not trying to get from them. He's giving to them. He spends himself most gladly. There's no sense of begrudging. Most gladly, I will spend and be expended for your souls. John chapter 12, verse 24 and following, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I think Paul is kind of exemplifying that teaching of Christ there. I will most gladly spend and be spent. I am dying that you may live. There's nothing meritorious about that. God is, you know, he doesn't gain God's favor. There's just not, you know, God's not impressed in that kind of way. But it is obedience. He's doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. He's loving his brothers and his sisters. They're hurting because one member of the body hurts. He hurts. And so he spins himself. That whole notion is so countercultural. In a world that, you know, just tells us that everything's kind of about you, about me. There's, there's no authority really greater than you. Follow your heart, do what you think, what you feel. Paul isn't doing that. I'll most gladly spend and be spent for you. It's not only countercultural, it's so counter self. I mean, does your flesh not kind of rise up and say, no, wait a minute. Surely there's some limits to that. There's got to be some buts. I look at Paul and I find his love for and his patience with the Corinthians so admirable. But when I'm called to do the same, I feel my flesh rise up and say, wait a minute, is it worth that? That far? That much? 
How in the world can he do that? How can you and I do that? I believe it is because it is the gospel that calls us to do that. It's Christ and his gospel. And what I, what I mean is that there's good news attached to this. There's good news towering above this. Paul is not expending himself just so that he can hurry up to an early grave. He's willing to spend himself and be spent because life is happening through that. God is transforming lives. And his hope is that these people who have claimed to be members of the new covenant will prove that they are indeed members of the new covenant. And if they are indeed members of the new covenant, then transformation must take place. It's impossible for it to be otherwise. And so his hope is that they will indeed repent and he will have much reason to rejoice. How can a person enter into that relationship, that covenant, and look upon the unveiled face of Christ and not be transformed? And so he's patient. He's gentle. He's hopeful. He's been given a stewardship. God is at work through him and partnering with him to urge these people to be reconciled. Again, we are not apostles. But the new covenant hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. And we can have much hope that God who is at work does still change people. He transforms them. And with that hope in mind, gripped, constrained by love to Christ or the love of Christ, spending and being spent becomes much more possible. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to look and see again the dimensions of this love of Christ. And in the grip of such love, God, we pray that you would make us to be willing to spend and be spent. Not for some half-baked cause. Not for some selfish purpose. But that Christ may be formed in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.